Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And uh, go down to the catechism memory work. What here is other pastors, right into the Bible memory work. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. Where the scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain. The worker deserves his wages. 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 18. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. And Luther's morning or evening prayer. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have graciously kept me this day. And I pray that you would forgive me all my sins where I have done wrong and graciously keep me this night. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. The almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit bless us and keep us. Amen. All right. I'm going to pick back up in the Gospel of Mark. And uh, my goal, don't know if it'll happen. Never know. My goal is to finish chapter 1 today. But we're going to pick back up in uh, verse 14, which uh, we had left off right after Jesus was in the wilderness. And he was with the wild beast, and the angels ministered to him. And uh, verse 14 begins Jesus' Galilean ministry. So um, we'll just kind of take it about a paragraph at a time. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. All right. A lot of things to point out here in these two verses. So, first of all, um, John is put into prison. Now, we're going to see later on what chapter is that? I think it's around chapter 6 or so, I want to say. Let me just double check. Um, we're going to find out later on, yeah, yeah, it's chapter 6, about John the Baptist beheading. But for now, John's in prison. And you get a couple other details about John in the other Gospels. John the Baptist, that is, distinct from John the Apostle, who we're going to meet in a second. But there's a there's a change here. So we had talked about last week how John the Baptist is kind of this final Old Testament prophet, but he's also the first New Testament prophet, right? He's kind of this in-between prophet where um, he has a baptism that's not just a ritual washing, but a baptism that is uh, for repentance, but it's not quite the baptism of Jesus, which is going to be for the forgiveness of sins and for the Spirit, right? So there's this this kind of in-between. Well, it's significant here that Mark, he doesn't really give you a lot of detail. I mean, you'd expect if someone says, hey, this guy went to prison that was just preaching and teaching, you know, there would be some understanding of what that was for, right, which there's not. There's no explanation of that. So why does Mark even include it? Well, I think it's really actually significant uh, that this is the transition from the Old to the New Testament, right? John is put away, and Jesus is here, right? 
Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee. That there's this change from the old covenant ministry to the new covenant ministry. I think that's what that verse is getting at. And what was Jesus doing, right, in Galilee? Well, actually, first, let's try and take things in order. Okay, so Galilee, I almost printed out maps for y'all. Um, maybe I'll do that next week. There, There is a, a lot of uh, geography in Mark, and really in all the Gospels, I guess. But um, So if you go from, if you have the, the Mediterranean Sea, right, here, and this is kind of the, the area of what we call the, the Holy Land. Um, here you have the, the Jordan River running along here. You got the Dead Sea up here. Or no, sorry, the Sea of Galilee here and then the Dead Sea down here. Um, and then this is the Mediterranean. All right. You basically have uh, three divisions here of, of land. You have Judea, the land of the Judeans, where Jerusalem is. This is Jerusalem here. And then you have Samaria, where the Samaritans are from. And then you have Galilee. Okay. And up here on the sea, there's the Sea of Galilee, right? And then there's the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea. Up here on the Sea of Galilee, you have, uh, we're going to get here in a second. This is where Capernaum is. It's a little fishing village on the Sea of Galilee. And, and Capernaum, um, Capernaum becomes the kind of hub of Jesus' ministry. Um, and Galilee, this, uh, the, if you remember here in this, this outline, um, the first section of Mark is the Galilean ministry for the most part. Okay, so Jesus came to Galilee. So kind of keep those in mind. Um, when, when Jesus is, after uh, the second section here, on our way to the third section, this is when Jesus is going to start to journey down to Jerusalem, right? Now, if you read John's gospel, um, he probably actually ends up in Jerusalem a couple times throughout his ministry, but uh, for the sake of simplicity in Mark's gospel, that there's really just one journey that, that gets mentioned. Okay. All right. Um, yep. Where are we at? Okay, so that's Galilee. Oh, Jesus is preaching. So he's preaching in Galilee. And preaching is going to be pretty important later on in the chapter as well. Um, he starts preaching. And what is he preaching? The good news of the kingdom of God. And saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Okay, so we get a couple of repeated words and phrases there. First, the gospel, right, which is the, the good news about Jesus, right? And this uh, this is a re- really a kind of new term. Um, repent is not a new term, right? Repent repentance is kind of all over in the Old Testament, but this idea of gospel of good news this is kind of a new term. Uh, that is coming on scene in in the Gospels. And the idea of the Gospel is that this is, uh, I mean, it literally translates as um, a good message, right? A a well message. And what is the good message? What is the message that brings goodness? Well, it's the message of the kingdom of God. Now, if you think about what... You kind of kind of think about what the like Second Temple Judean Christians thought about the Messiah, right? They, these people who had returned from exile, they had rebuilt the temple. They're waiting on the Messiah, and and kind of what was expected from the Old Testament. I think a lot of what they expected was political, and you're going to get this in the uh, confusion of the disciples. As, as well of the confusion of a lot of people throughout the Gospels, is that what they're expecting is for Jesus to bring this new political reign. right? If you go back through the history of the Old Testament, what constantly happened, um, starting with the United Kingdom, 
and then going through the exiles is, and well, really even starting with the uh, the judges um, to some degree, and, and maybe even to some degree the patriarchs, is Israel's constantly looking for a leader that's going to save them, right? They're constantly looking, and and oftentimes they're expecting this Messiah, right? And um, there are multiple times throughout the Old Testament where you get someone who it, they pe- certain people think are is the Messiah, right? So, um, like in the Genesis Bible study, we talked about how Abraham thought Isaac was the Messiah. Uh, you get people who think David's the Messiah when David comes along. You get people, they're looking for a Messiah, and what they're looking is for a human who's going to be born out of this certain line, and that he's going to save the people of Israel, right? And this is why the Israelites beg for a king. They really, really want a king. And God gives them kings, but those kings end up being sinful, right? And even when they have the kings, um, oftentimes they lead them astray. And ultimately, because of their disobedience, uh, they are sent into exile, um, to, at, part, first of all, to the Assyrians, and then and then to the Babylonians, they're sent into this exile, and they're dispersed, and there's all this horror and 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 war and bloodshed. And then in Second Temple Judaism, they get to rebuild the temple. Um, if you read the uh, Apocrypha, you find out about this Maccabean revolt and all these things that happen. And then you get to Jesus coming on scene in the New Testament, and they have the the Second Temple, but it's under Roman rule. Okay, and so what the Jews are expecting, I think, these Second Temple Judean Christians, a lot of what they're expecting Messiah is the one who's going to kind of overthrow the rule of the Romans, and they're finally going to get this this whole promised land that's been, you know, centuries and centuries and a millennium coming that's been promised, and and he's going to take over and he's going to rule, right? And it's going to be this great kingdom. And so if you think about that as what they're hearing when they're hearing the kingdom of God, um, they kind of think this is, okay, this is good news. But this goes along with what we have already mentioned a little bit with this uh, theme about the Son of God, that Jesus is not just a man. He's not just here to bring a human kingdom. Right? He's not just here to uh, kind of save the, the people from their sins in a temporal sense, but in a true, eternal, and spiritual sense. And so the longer that this ministry of Jesus goes on, and we're going to see this here pretty soon, the longer that this ministry of Jesus goes on, it becomes clearer and clearer that he's not just here for a political kingdom that the kingdom of God is something else, and that the way he's going to institute this kingdom is not the normal means by which you'd institute a political kingdom, right? It's not by overthrow. It's not by war. It's not by raising up an army. It's not by political speeches. It's by preaching and teaching and healing and then ultimately his journey to the cross where he's going to be crucified and resurrected. And that's not how you institute a political kingdom, right? Um, martyrdom is not the way that someone rises to power, right? So it's it's kind of a, a very interesting thing, um, this the, the good news of the kingdom of God. And he says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. And he's going to show in his life by his actions, especially in the Gospel of Mark, what that gospel is and what that kingdom of God looks like. Okay, so um, the other thing to think about just as basics with this kingdom of God stuff is that the kingdom of God is instituted, it comes about with Jesus, right? Because he's the king. He says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom of God is inaugurated with Jesus. And so, especially today, today's the last Sunday in the church year. 
So we're thinking about the final coming of Jesus. Um, One of the distinctions or kind of things we can think about with the coming of Jesus is that we have this idea of eschatology, the end times, where we can say that something is true both now and not yet. Now and not yet. And this is the idea that Jesus has come and he has instituted, he has inaugurated the kingdom of God. He came and he said the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. As we wait for Jesus to come back again, it's also not completely here yet. Right? So there are two comings of Jesus. And we'll talk about this more in Advent. This is what Advent is all about. So this is timely in the church here. The first coming is at his birth. And as in in the Gospel of Mark, especially as he begins his ministry and his baptism, the kingdom of God is inaugurated. And he's he becomes king when he's crowned with the crown of thorns, right? And he's enthroned upon a cross. That's his inauguration as king. That kingdom starts there, and it still continues now, right? We live in the kingdom of God. This church is part of the kingdom of God. However, that kingdom of God is not completely come to its full fruition yet, right? We're still waiting on Jesus to come back to make everything right. We're still waiting on him to come back to judge the living and the dead and and to bring to judge the nations and to bring everything under his control, right? And on that day, it will be a political kingdom in a sense because he will be the only king, right? Psalm 2, all the kings of the earth will bow at the, at the feet of Jesus, right? But until that day, we have this separation where the church exists as the kingdom of God now, living out the kingdom commands of their king, and we're waiting also waiting for it to come in a fuller way when Jesus comes back again, okay? So um, this is what Jesus means when he says the kingdom of God is fulfilled, right? Or the time, sorry, the time is fulfilled, that the kingdom of God now has started because the king has arrived. But we we can say in in another sense, it's, it's now, but it's not yet. Okay, hope that makes sense. All right, um, Any questions on that first paragraph? Come on here. All right, so uh, starting at verse 16 then. And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. Okay, so the first two apostles that are called are Simon, who's later going to be called Peter. So Simon, Peter. And Andrew, and uh, they're fishermen. Okay, so um, I think it's interesting that so just kind of to look at both those disciples really quickly. Peter is kind of the first among equals when it comes to the disciples, right? So you get, um, and in a second we're going to get James and John. Peter, James, and John uh, together are really the big three, like. You know, there's nothing against Bartholomew, but no one really talks about Bartholomew, right? He's just not the guy in the Gospels. Peter, James, and John are always the the three that are, like, right at Jesus' side, right? And um, so there is this kind of distinction. They're they're all equal, right? They're all the 12 disciples, the the chosen 12, right? And that that number 12, it, of course, is... um, reminiscent of the 12 tribes of Israel. It's this number of fullness in the church. But uh, there, there are kind of first among equals, if you will, right? There's always order in the church. Um, it's, there's, God is a God of order, not a God of chaos. And Peter, James, and John do kind of become the leaders of the apostles, and Peter especially, and in some ways becomes the leader of the apostles. And the Catholics take this way too far, right? They they take this idea and say, okay, he was the leader and he was 
he became the Pope and the Bishop of Rome and gets this special position and all that. Um, well, we would point to the verses where Peter is obviously completely a sinner as well, right? <laughs> um, like when he denies Jesus or when Jesus, uh, he gets distracted and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, right? So Peter has his issues too. And Peter's also married, by the way. I'll talk about that in a second. Um, but I, I do think it's good to recognize that there is kind of an ordering in the in the apostles in a way. All right. So um, you get Simon Peter, and then you get um, who's P- Peter Petros means rock, right? So Jesus talks about that later. And then Andrew is an interesting name as well. Um, I, I like to that. Jesus went and chose a guy named Andrew because there's kind of a cool language thing that happens here. So the word Andrew in in Greek is the word andros, uh, which is where we get the term like um, uh, androgynous, right? So anyway, andro, Andrew means man is what it means. So um, that uh that like mankind is kind of the idea there and this is the name the this is the name of the or the trans sorry a translation of the hebrew word um ish which is the first name given to adam adam means ground that's his second name but the first name given to um adam is ish which is man and then uh eve is then first called isha which is woman right because woman is taken out of man so um, it's kind of interesting that you have uh, Andrew as one of the first called disciples, right? Because Peter and Andrew are called at the same time. And Adam is the first created. So you have Adam as the first created and Andrew as the first called, right? And I kind of like to think that Jesus did that on purpose. That what when he, what he's showing there is that you have a, a new creation theme going on when he goes and calls the guy named Andrew as one of the first apostles. And the other thing this shows, I think, I mean, if you want to take this, um, depending on how far you want to take this, is that Jesus really did come at exactly the right time in world history, right? And he knew exactly what village to go to and exactly where... Now, in one sense, you could say, well, Jesus could kind of make anything work because he's Jesus, right? Um, he could have gone, come at any time in world history and he could have um, chosen any place in the world and he's Jesus, so he could have made it work. But the fact that he comes when he comes and he finds who he finds and he does it where he does everything that he does and that it's recorded how it is, it just really does all work out perfectly, right? And Paul catches on to this in Galatians, I think it's four, um, when he says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, right? And Jesus even says it here, right? The time is fulfilled, that this was the perfect time. And um, I can't remember, there's a church father who talks about this. I've preached on it before, I don't, around Christmas, but um, the idea that like the Roman Empire was um, in one sense the like the most worldwide empire that had existed to that point in human history. And that when Jesus, it signifies that when Jesus comes, he comes for the whole world, right? And that he came at just this right moment in human history um, where he could be uh, crucified by the Roman government um, in the place where the temple was. And it, the way everything works out is really just amazing. So that's something to ponder is that Jesus kind of has everything all worked out, right, um, in the time that he comes. All right. Well, you could, right. Yeah, you can see God's hand working throughout history in order to bring about this this perfect timing. Right, no, no, it's not. yeah, it's good. All right. Um, okay, and so then what does he do when he calls these first disciples? He says, uh, they're fishermen, right? And they, they, he says, leave their net, uh, follow me, 
I'm going to make you fishers of men. And immediately then left their nets and followed him. Okay, so a couple things here. One is this idea of follow me, which is going to come up again and again. That following Jesus, um, first of all, he has the authority, right? That when he says, follow me, what do they do? They drop their nets and they follow him, right? He's got the authority uh, to command them to do this. Second of all, following Jesus is going to mean a life of hardship, right? Because what do they do when they follow him? They give up their jobs, right? They give up their uh, careers as fishermen, uh, which is their source of income and their source of food. And uh, it also shows that this is not what they're going to do, right? Jesus uh, preaches here in a metaphor that is clearly not something that makes any physical or logical sense when he says, I'm going to make you fishers of men, right? You can't literally go out and throw nets on people or put hooks in people's mouths, right? It's not going to not going to go well. So what does he mean? Well, of course, he's talking about evangelism. He's talking about bringing people into the kingdom of God, just like the fish are brought into the net. Um, But what that's showing there, going back to what we were saying earlier, is that this whole kingdom of God business, this is not like a physical thing, right? He doesn't say, I'm going to make you into, you know, warriors for my new kingdom. He says, I'm going to make you fishers of men, right? which is because he uses such a kind of out there example, if you will, you can tell it has to be something spiritual, right? It has to have a spiritual meaning. So uh, that's something to think about as well. Okay. And also, by the way, notice we have another immediately. So that's like our, I think it's our third or fourth immediately at this point. All right. When he had gone a little further from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending their nets, and immediately called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. Okay, so he gets a couple more fishermen. This time it's James and John. So again, within the first four disciples, you have the big kind of three. You got Peter, James, and John. Um, and these are the James and John are the sons of Zebedee. Later on. In um, Mark chapter three, he's going to call Jesus is going to rename them the sons of thunder, which we'll talk about that when we get there. Uh, but just so you know, the sons of Zebedee and the sons of thunder, the same two sons, James and John. And this is James, the apostle of John, or sorry, James, the apostle of Jesus. Um, I think this uh, he's often called James the Greater. Yeah, this is James the Greater. And then there's two theories as to the other Jameses. So there's um, also a James uh, the Less, who's another one of um, the, these people in the Gospels that's around Jesus. And then you have James, the brother of Jesus, who becomes Bishop at, um, sorry, no, Bishop of Jerusalem uh, later on in the book of Acts. And um, there's debate as to whether or not James the Less and James, the brother of Jesus, are the same James or not. So there's either two or three James, but this is the um, James the the greater, the apostle, the son of Zebedee, right? Not Jesus' brother. Okay. And then you have um, John, uh, who is, this is, of course, the John we all think about when we think about John in the Bible. Um, that's not John the Baptist. This is John the apostle who writes the Gospel John and the book of Revelation and the three epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Okay. All right. Um, they're also fishermen, and then we get another immediately. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with hired servants and went after him. Now this, so this time we get a little bit difference, right? Because the first one, it's emphasized that they leave their nets, so they leave their careers. This time it's emphasized that they leave their father. So they leave their family, right? And of course, Jesus is going to teach later on, if you love me, then that sometimes means leaving even your family, right? And that the gospel can even cause division among families. So uh, that's that teaching is almost implicit here uh, in that. And it's not to, now, now it's not to say that Zebedee was unfaithful, Um 
in fact, we have no reason to think that, but uh, that following Jesus might mean leaving your family to some degree, right? I think is kind of implicit there. All right, any questions so far? All right, so then they went to Capernaum, which we already talked about on the map, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught, and they were astonished at his teaching. And he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Okay, so again, got another immediately that brings us up to like five or six or something like that. I think five. I think we had two in the last. Do we have two or three last time? Anyway, notice how action-packed it is though, right? Um, so immediately on the Sabbath, he enters the synagogue and teaches or preaches. Um, in the New Testament, there's... Uh, really no distinction between teaching and preaching. That they're the same they're the same activity. So for whatever that's worth. But he enters the synagogue and he starts preaching and they're astonished at his preaching and he teaches them as one having authority, not as the scribes, right? So we get the idea of authority again. So a couple things here. One is that Jesus presumes the offices of priest and prophet, right? He's, he acts like a priest because he just walks right into the synagogue and starts acting like he owns the place and knows what he can do and can't do, right? He has the authority of a priest. And then second, he acts like a prophet because he starts preaching, right? And this who, who preached in the Old Testament? It's the prophets, right? So um, we have the threefold office of Christ is uh, prophet, priest, and king. And we've already... We've already talked about how he's the king. He's bringing the kingdom of God. And now he's acting like the priest and the prophet. Right? So all of, all of his offices, he's already starting to fulfill. And this is how Mark goes, right? It's like one thing after another, fast, fast, fast. Okay, so he's acting like the priest and the prophet, and he's teaching. And what's interesting is he teaches not only as one who has authority, which we already mentioned, but um, as one who uh, teaches not like the scribes teach. And... Um, I think in one way what Jesus is doing here, this is kind of a side note, is he's instituting Christian preaching, right? The prophets were Christian preachers. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but it seems like the prophets, when they preached, it was at random, right? Like it was not at random, but it was when they received a prophecy, like when the Lord told them, okay, now it's time to go prophesy, then they went and prophesied, right? But it wasn't like, okay, on Sunday morning at, at 4 p.m., you're going to receive a prophecy every week, and, and then you're going to preach, right? Um, but Jesus goes on the Sabbath and goes into the church and starts preaching, right? And it seems like basically from this moment, Jesus seems to do this very, very regularly and then when the New Testament apostles um, begin, you know, start the early church, this is the practice, is you start, you preach every Sunday, right? You preach that, that the preaching of the gospel happens every Lord's Day, right? Every time there's a church service. And so this is kind of an institution, I think, of New Testament preaching, right? Where it's preaching from the word, preaching from the gospel, not just um, kind of prophecy when prophecy comes. So this is this is something interesting to note as well. All right, but then um, what I actually want to talk about was the scribes, right? So what did the scribes teach like? Because it says, Mark makes the point that te he teaches not like the scribes, and this surprises people. So one thing you could do prior to this is go into the synagogue and you could hear the scribes talk. And what were the scribes teaching? Well, the scribes obviously copied scripture, right? That was part of their job as scribes. But the other thing that the scribes did, and you can see this in the new, in the Gospels that they're very much connected to the Pharisees, is the scribes were kind of like church lawyers. And what they did is they studied especially the law. And this was their specialty. If you kind of read the Gospels closely about the questions that the scribes ask and the questions that are asked the scribes, that what they do is they study the law and they're kind of like um, what you could describe them as today would be like 
maybe kind of like tax lawyers. They like help you get uh, the most out of your money without the IRS getting onto you. But this is um, for Jews who want to follow the law and retain their Judaism, right? So this kind of like Pharisaical attitude of um, what are the loopholes? Like how do I how do I make sure I fulfill all the how the, all the laws stay clean and um, but not have to do too much work, right? And this is kind of what the scribes taught on. The scribes would um, study the law carefully and figure out all the little loopholes that they could come up with, right? This is and this is the Pharisaical attitude of and this is what's rampant for Jesus in the synagogues, right? And this is why it's so surprising that Jesus he doesn't teach like this, right? He doesn't teach um, on a kind of um, legalism, right, of how to get around God's law, right? What is the teaching of Jesus in a nutshell? It's, well, it's what we already heard him preach, repent and believe in the gospel, right? And this is something totally different, coming with authority, something totally different than what they're normally hearing from the Pharisees and the scribes in the synagogue, right? So it's um, quite, quite a change. All right, any um, questions so far, comments? All right, verse 20, uh, start verse 23 here. I need to speed up. All right. Now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Okay, so a couple of different things here. Uh, first of all, the demons, they can't help but react to the preaching of Jesus' word, right? And um, Jesus makes this very clear when he talks to the disciples about casting out demons is that by the authority of God's word, they will come out, right? If you, um, that they, can, they, they will come out by prayer and fasting and, and the preaching of his word. And they, they have this um, reaction, right, this this very intense reaction when Jesus preaches, right? What are you doing here? Let us alone, right? Now, the, uh, the next thing to notice here is that they're plural, right? So it's a singular demon, a man with an unclean spirit, but the spirit, the unclean spirits, the demons, they, they always come and, and uh, they, they want to come in groups, right? So Jesus preaches on this later. He says, like, um, you know, when when an unclean spirit leaves leaves the house, um, how's that go? The the house is clean and swept in order, but then the spirit brings back seven more spirits with it, and it's worse than it was before. That the spirits like to attack in hordes, right? Or the um, when the demon says, "We are legion," right? We are many. The, the demons like to attack in, in hordes or in a legion. And so this one clean spirit, unclean spirit cries out and says, let us alone, right? It feels attacked as the, the group of demons. And what have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? Okay, so there's this um, kind of plural factor in the understanding of demons, okay? Now, What's a couple interesting things here is one of the things you know about demons is that demons um, know things about you that you don't tell other people, right? This is this is one thing the movies kind of get right is that it seems that whenever there's a case of demonic activity um, or possession, that demons will uh, proclaim things about people in the room that they have no that you know, that the person would have no way of knowing. Well, what's interesting here is that Jesus, um, he just walks in to the synagogue and starts teaching. We have no reason to think he ever shared his name with anyone, right? Now, maybe people are like, oh, that's Jesus. Uh, we don't exactly know. But so far, Jesus isn't that popular, right? He just, um, he's gonna get popular really fast after this episode. But so far, he's just walked in and started preaching and they don't really know who he is, Right. Um, and what does the demon do? He calls him out by name, right? So I think what's going on here is that the demon 
is naming Jesus, even though Jesus hasn't shared his name yet, which is kind of an interesting thing. So what, what have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? And then the demon actually correctly identifies God. He says, I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. Okay. So most likely this um, comes from Psalm 16. Uh, this is, I, th- I think, the only place this, this phrase is used in terms of the Messiah. Let me see if I can find it here real quick. Put, change my marker. So Psalm 16, verse 10. And Psalm 16 is, um, it's a great psalm. It's a psalm for Christians to, to pray. Um, but then at the, at the end of the psalm, it especially gets uh, very messianic. And um, we use this phrase a lot, I think, in the various times throughout the church here in the liturgy. Um, so I'll start at verse 9. And I think... Uh, this is where where it gets really messianic. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So the messianic things here are that... Um, my flesh will rest in hope. You'll not leave my soul in Sheol. That this seems to be, to me, a reference to Jesus in the tomb, right? And to in his descent into hell. That when when Jesus rests in the tomb and he descends into hell, that God, the Father is not leaving Jesus in Sheol, right? He's not, um, and he's he's allowed to rest in hope because of the resurrection. And then this is where we get this proper name, your holy one, to see corruption, right? That, um, again there, that there's going to be victory in the in the resurrection. You will show me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. And then, so we kind of get to the ascension here, that the son is going to um, ascend back to the right hand of the father, and then we get at your right hand our pleasures forevermore. So this is... I think this is a picture of Jesus' uh, death, rest in the tomb, resurrection, and ascension in Psalm 16, 9 to 10. And interestingly enough, this is what the unclean spirit, the demon, recognizes Jesus as, is the Holy One in Psalm 16. So um, whatever that's worth, it's very interesting to me, right? You're the Holy One of God. And whether or not people get that, right, is up for debate, but the demons always get it, right? The devil always knows what's going on. Um, he just hates it, right? But the devil understands the word of God, right? The devil is a great exegete in some ways. All right. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. Then they were all amazed, so they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? excuse me, what is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately, no oh, they're immediately, his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. Okay, so um, Jesus is not afraid of the demon, right? He rebukes the demon. He has authority over the demon. He knows he has authority over the demon. And we have authority over the demons, right? The word is is powerful. Um, the demon is overcome. And I guess I'm, I'm talking this way. Uh, I should point this out just in case it's a point of confusion at all, but um, demons are real, right? This isn't just kind of a thing that happens in the gospel. But the Bible is very clear that uh, the devil still prowls around wanting to, to tempt us. And that the devil still has demons in this world that are active. Um, and I can tell you stories about that, if you want, that I've heard from other pastors and some of the few experiences I've had myself. But um, demonic activity definitely happens, right? So we can talk about that sometime a little bit more if you want. But I think um, the way to deal with that is not like 
I don't know. Sometimes I hear people t- talk about demonology um, and the the devil and demons, and I don't I don't know if it's because of the um, you know exorcism variety of movies or what exactly it is, but um, Christians tend to act as like it's like that's a Roman Catholic thing. Or um, you have to have some kind of special knowledge to deal with that. The Gospels teach about it. God's Again, God's word is powerful. And the disciples are given the power to rebuke the unclean spirits. All right, so I, I know pastors that have done exorcisms, and they work, right? Um, and I, like, I don't say this lightly, because it is a serious matter, but I am confident that I could do an exorcism if I needed to, like as part of my job. Um, I have been involved in some kind of interesting house blessings I can tell you about, but um, anyhow, I just wanted to, to throw that out there. And if there's any questions about that, we can clear it up. But um, I, w- I will say this is one thing that sometimes movies do get somewhat right is that these things are real, um, and there are certain things that seem to happen, like the the demons um, proclaiming things that aren't already known, um, as we already saw, uh, the demons uh, convulsing, right, and crying out with loud voices, and uh, so on and so forth. So um, some of this stuff is actually already just documented here in the Gospels, okay? Yeah, go ahead. Right. Right. Yeah, and I think it's part of it. The the weirdness with talking about it today is that, um, it, since since kind of the Enlightenment. We've become, you know, very scientific-minded, and we kind of think like, oh, well, there's just like a logical explanation for this or that or the other thing, and we think less spiritually. But like in the Gospels, it seems very clear, and in the ancient world, it's very clear that, like, it's just assumed that people could have weird spirits, right? And that if there was a guy that, you know, was kind of running around town acting a certain way. That that's probably what he had. There was a there was a guy with an unclean spirit there in the synagogue, right? And yeah, and the, the other point is like, well, obviously no one had done anything about it yet, right? But this guy has the power over the spirits, right? And this this kind of goes back to that thing I said when we started. Mark is like this. I tell people to start with this gospel if they've never read the Bible before, because it's like, what do you think of? It begs the question, what do you think of Jesus? Like, this is the guy who can take care of the problem. This is this is the first guy and the only guy who's ever been able to take care of the problems, right? So they're shocked, they're amazed. I think it's interesting going off of that that they say, what new doctrine is this, right? And you can tell they're in some sense still in kind of scribal mode because they're like, okay, where is this? Where is this in the teaching? Like. Where's where's this in the law? You know, where like where where what ver? Give me a verse reference so I can look this up, right? Um, which doctrine is important? Teaching is important, but especially in Mark's gospel, um, it's not about the doctrine per se. It's about the actions of Jesus and his authority, and um, they're like, what what's the doctrine? <laughs> uh, what's this new doctrine? Yeah. I mean, this is his first time he's preaching. The first time anybody's seen it. Seen, seen it, right? right? Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, that's kind of what you'd expect the reaction to be, right? Yeah. You won't think, oh, here's the Son of God, or here's our Messiah. I mean, you don't just make that leap. Right. Yeah. No, that's a good point. It's very interesting. All right. So then, um, immediately. We got another immediately there. His fame spreads throughout the region of Galilee. Okay, and so from this point on, we're going to see in the rest of this chapter here that um, Jesus kind of can't get away from people. They want, they're really interested in him all of a sudden. Okay, but notice the first thing he does is preach. 
first thing he does is preach. And then the, there happens to be the unclean spirit there. That's, that's going to be important later on here. Okay, so then they uh, go out of the synagogue and they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife's mother, so Simon Peter's mother-in-law, which means that Peter was married, which is awkward for the Catholics, right? But that's, you know, it is what it is. Um, you know, first pope had a wife. Uh, but his uh, mother-in-law was sick with a fever, and they told him about her at once. So he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately, it's the next immediately, immediately the fever left her, and she served them. Okay, so um, this kind of begs the question, and we're going to come across this again and again, why does Jesus do these miracles? Why does Jesus perform these miracles whenever he comes across someone that's sick or suffering or whatever the case may be, or someone who has an unclean spirit? Well, I think the the basic answer is that, one, he has the authority to do so, and two, he has that authority as a servant. He comes to serve, right? Not to, not to be served, but to serve. But three, and I, I think this is really the main reason, is he can't help himself. Jesus is the restorer of creation. He's the one who comes to create the new heavens and new earth. He's the one who brings the final and full kingdom of God. And when Jesus comes across something that is caused by sin, which has corrupted creation, in creation, he can't help but to restore it. Right? It's like it's in his DNA to restore creation. Right? And so when someone's sick, he brings them back to full health, right? When someone can't see, he restores their sight, right? When someone has an unclean spirit, he casts out the unclean spirit. It's like he can't, when he goes along, he, he really can't help himself, right? And um, I, it, it becomes very clear um, throughout the gospels, we can look at a couple verses, that the purpose of the miracles is not to convince people, right? Because for one very simple reason that not everyone's convinced by it. Just because a guy can do miracles doesn't mean everyone's convinced by it, right? The gospel, the, the disciples, for instance, see, you know, almost all the miracles that Jesus does, and they still doubt at times that he's the Messiah, that he's the son of God, that he's, excuse me, saved the world. Um, the miracles don't convince people, right? And John, John tells us clearly the miracles aren't written for unbelievers. They're written for the believers, right? Those who have ears, let them hear. Those who have eyes, let them see, right? Um, uh, they're not written for the, the unbelievers to convince them. It's not an apologetic tool. I think it's because he can't help himself. It's who he is, right? He's the restorer of creation. That'll become a little more clear as we keep going on. Right. Right. Yeah, he's there to serve. He's there to give out his righteousness and his cleanliness. Yep. No, absolutely. Absolutely. All right, um, so then after that, it's sunset. Okay, so at, at evening when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and who were demon-possessed. Now, it's interesting, right, because um, you kind of have this Jesus as man and Jesus as God thing because on one hand, as man, he's, he's got to be tired, right? This is before the advent of electricity. Um, sunset is basically when people would settle down and go to sleep for a while because... There, I mean, there's, you can't see very much, right? You might have candles, but you're not really going to see that much after the sun sets. So you're much more guided by the circadian rhythm. So it's um, important that um, after sunset, they bring him everyone, right? So they're, this is how excited the people are, that they're staying up late and, and finding Jesus. And he's probably tired, right? He's had a long day. He's, you know, preached and cast out 
unclean spirit and he called the disciples and all that. I mean, it seems to kind of happen in the same day at least. Um, That's po- that's a good point. That's definitely possible um, that they they were kind of still in that scribal mode where they didn't want to to break the Sabbath, uh, and so the Sabbath get, gets over that evening. I've never thought about that before. Uh, that that's a good point. I do wonder that. Um, yeah, that's definitely a possibility. I I don't know. I've never thought about it, but. Um, the thing I was going to add to that as well was that, so on one hand, you know, he's probably tired. Um, th- on the other hand, he's also God, right? So he neither slumbers nor sleeps. And so when they gather at the door, he goes ahead and he heals them. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. Um, and he did not, now this is an interesting line too. He did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him, Right. And this is going along with what we're going to see that comes up later, which is called the messianic secret, where Jesus commands people after he does miracles, don't go and tell everyone about this, right? And this is why um, what, what I said earlier makes a little bit more sense too, that the purpose of the miracles is not to go out and convince everybody, right? If the purpose of the miracles was to convince everybody, he'd want everyone to know about them, right? He'd want that, that fame to spread. Uh, but his purpose is not for that fame to spread. His purpose is not to convince everyone by doing the miracles. Um, his purpose in doing the miracles is because he he wants to, because he loves creation. He wants to restore it. But he does not allow the demons to speak because they knew him, right? So in a sense, there's a there's a sense in which Jesus is waiting um, for what is he's really getting to, which is eventually going to be the cross, right? He's, he's kind of, in his Galilean ministry, he's teaching and he's preaching, but he wants to bring about the ultimate reconciliation of God and man through the cross and his death and resurrection at the right time. And we already saw the demons already know he's the Messiah, but he wants to reveal himself as the Messiah in a particular way, not through the miracles. And so he doesn't allow the demons to speak. So it's kind of it's kind of interesting there. He does not allow the demons to speak because they know him. All right. What time is it? All right, two minutes. Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, so basically he stays up all night. He went out and departed to a solitary place where he prayed. All right, and um, this is, of course, something that's common in the Gospels, that Jesus sets an example for us that prayer is not supposed to be this big public fiasco, but uh, devotional life should be, in a sense, private, that your Father who sees you in secret will reward you in secret. So we have this kind of Jesus as example thing. And we also have, again, Jesus as a man, right, that... Um, he needs alone time away from all this kind of chaos, right, and time to recuperate. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. When they found him, they said to him, everyone is looking for you, right? So that it's like incessant. You just cannot get away from people. But he said to them, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. So what does Jesus say his purpose is? It's not to heal. Right? It's not to do the miracles. It is to preach. Because the preaching of the gospel is how he wants to reveal himself. Right? And that's true today. This is something that continues on in the New Testament church. Right? Jesus does not reveal himself by giving me the power to you know, have people come up the center aisle and for me to heal them here. Right? That's not what Jesus instituted. How does Jesus reveal the kingdom of God? By preaching. Right? For this purpose I have come forth that I may preach to the people, right? This is how he reveals his cross and resurrection. This is how he reveals what he's come for. This is how he reveals the kingdom of God is by preaching, right? And then as he was preaching in their synagogues throughout Galilee, he was also casting out demons, right? Because it's, it seems like the, the, what's going on is that as he's traveling and preaching, people come up to him and he can't help but heal them. People come up to him and can't help but cast out the demons, Right? That's what he does. 
But that's not the purpose. It's not the purpose. Okay. That's about time for today. I almost made it. We got five verses left. Any final questions or comments? No? All right. Well, I hope you're enjoying this as much as I am. I think this is great. 